on this episode of Jeff Does Vegas. You know, Liberace, uh, in terms of his significance in Las Vegas entertainment, is on par, or I would even argue maybe even more important uh, than Elvis and the Rat Pack and others. But the Liberace-Las Vegas connection, I mean, to me, they're just synonymous. In, in a lot of ways, Liberace as a stage act presented himself the exact same way Las Vegas presents itself and they were a match made in heaven Las Vegas it's more than just a city it's a feeling it's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window it's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard taking in the sights and sounds and it's that feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is Jeff Does Vegas. Welcome to episode number 140 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we get into this episode of the podcast, I just want to take a moment to thank my guest from the last episode of the show, John Morris, frequent Vegas visitor and the creator and founder of wheelchairtravel.org, a website and blog where he shares his experience of traveling as a wheelchair user. John and I chatted about accessibility in Las Vegas, including in hotels and casinos, the challenges of navigating the Vegas Strip in a wheelchair, and we went in-depth on air travel as a wheelchair user. If you haven't listened as of yet, jump into the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out episode number 139, Accessible Vegas, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. There's no question that Las Vegas is the entertainment capital of the world, and through its history, has played host to some of the most legendary acts of all time. Some names come to mind instantly, like the Rat Pack, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Sammy Davis Jr. There's Mr. Las Vegas himself, Wayne Newton, who's been performing in Sin City since the mid-60s and still headlines today. And of course, there's the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley, who managed to sell out a record 636 shows at the famed International Hotel, which would later become the Las Vegas Hilton. But one performer made his mark on Las Vegas before any of those people, and it seems he seldom receives the credit he's due. That performer is the one and only Liberace. Joining me on this episode of the podcast is Claire White, the Director of Education at the Mob Museum in downtown Las Vegas. Before joining the team at the Mob Museum, Claire spent several years working at the Liberace Museum, also in Las Vegas, where she learned all about the long and storied career of the man known as Mr. Showmanship. Claire and I talked in depth about Liberace's early days and his development as a performer, the lifestyle he lived and the special connection he shared with his fans, his impact on Las Vegas and his legacy in the city, and much more. Please enjoy my conversation with Claire White. first museum job was at the Liberace Museum. Um, I worked at the Liberace Museum while I was still in college. I started there 2004-2005 and I worked there for a little less than five years. Um, and I 
mostly grew up in Las Vegas. And so I think more than the average person born in the 80s, I, I knew a lot about Liberace already, um, as, as, uh, as I think any Las Vegas local would say. And I loved it. I loved the Liberace Museum. I loved the uh, I, I loved the fact that it was just sort of this hidden gem collection that by the time I worked there did not have the visitation that it had had in its early years, uh, but that it was still just sort of chugging along. And I worked there up until the last year before it closed, um, which is completely coincidentally. Uh, I left to go to graduate school to study museum studies. And by the time I'd moved back to Las Vegas, the museum was long closed, and and um, I had an opportunity to, to join the Mob Museum, and we, you know, we certainly focus very heavily on organized crime and law enforcement at the Mob Museum, but a huge part of that story is the Las Vegas story, and uh, you can't talk about Las Vegas without talking about entertainment, um, not only because it's such a big part of our draw for people, but also because the mob was intimately involved with uh, how entertainers were booked and why entertainers were booked and why entertainers were paid as much as they were paid. Liberace is a great example. Uh, when he opens the Riviera in 1955, he has the largest paycheck in the city to date, $50,000. And uh, the Riviera is opened by the mob. <laughs> There's organized crime financing in the Liber Riviera, pretty much the whole run of the hotel. And, you know, I, like this, that's a mob sort of mentality. They're actually in debt, they're deeply in debt when the Riviera opens, and they still say, "Let's throw fifty thousand at Liberace because we want the best show ever, and the only way to to do that is to put a little money up front, and we know we'll make it back." and And so it is, it is a it, it is tangential to our story, but it's been sort of a fun opportunity for me to reengage with Liberace, and then sort of uh, just it's it's a fun party trick too to know as much trivia about Liberace as I do. Let's dive into the life of Liberace. We'll start off at the beginning, which is always a good place to begin. Um, where and when was Liberace born and, and what was his family life like? So Liberace was born May 16th, 1919 in West Allis, Wisconsin. And um, a fun fact about Liberace, he was actually born a twin. Um, his identical twin died at birth. And according to family legend, at least, Liberace himself was 13 pounds at birth. Um, which is not only as a woman just terrifying, um, but also <laughs> I would say I, I, the reason I like to bring up that story is it's something that he had in common with Elvis. And I think it's one of the, the sort of surprising ways that he bonded with Elvis in, in, later in life when, when the two of them were performing here in Las Vegas. Um, his parents were um, Salvatore and Francis. Salvatore, his father, was Italian. Um, his mother, Francis, was Polish. And Liberace was the third of four children. Um, his father actually was a musician. So he grew up with music from an early, early age. His, his dad played the French horn um, with the John Philip Sousa band, as well as uh, Milwaukee Philharmonic and, and other uh, concert and theater bands. And his mom actually also played the piano, although I think it was one of those things that, you know, she'd learned it as a girl. And, and I don't know how often she was out there playing the piano when Liberace and his siblings were growing up. 
Now, my understanding is from some of the reading that I've done, um, he was actually discouraged by his family to go into music. So, yes, um, the Liberace family is is interesting because um, I, I think it's it's that standard immigrant story. Um, Salvatore loved music, certainly, and he wanted all of his children to learn a musical instrument at a young age, but he he knew how hard it was to be a musician. Like this was not a wealthy family. They, they, they were uh, scrounging and scraping for, for the majority of Liberace's childhood. And, and I mean, especially as, as they move into the great depression, I mean, Liberace is a teenager in the great depression. It is not a time where you suggest to your children that they become musicians. Um, I don't, I certainly don't think either of his parents were, were by any means disappointed. Um, and certainly his success spoke for itself in later years. But I do think that the goal was for the Liberace children to learn music as a useful skill, uh, but not to make careers out of it. <laughs> so despite their discouragement to a degree, it really was his parents that got him interested in music. Definitely. So um, all of the children learned instruments. George, the oldest, uh, who later would play with Liberace, learned the violin. And then Angie, his older sister, uh, started learning the piano. And I, I believe she was three years older than him. Um, so when she was, you know, seven, eight, he, he was four or five sort of mimicking his sister. And, and that's when the family realized like, oh, gosh, he's He's got an ear like he can actually pick up music at a very young age. Um, I, I, I hate to use the word like child prodigy or, or virtuoso because they're very loaded terms. Um, but he certainly was introduced to music very young by his family and his family realized when he was only four or five that he had talent. In his early career, as he started to work professionally, Liberace really did a lot of different things to try to set himself apart from other classical pianists who were working, didn't he? Yes. He, he, um, I think he just naturally knew how to market himself, uh, from, from the earliest of ages. Um, and a lot of that is definitely personal aptitude, but I do think it was also who he, had as mentors. Um, I think his father in, in a lot of ways, even though in later in life, he and his father were, were not close at all. I know that his father's ability to sort of play in different styles of music uh, influenced Liberace. His first piano teacher, who he had all through his uh, childhood and teen years, Florence Kelly, she sort of helped him early on come up with the ideas of uh, playing snippets of songs and just sort of getting getting audiences uh, excited, but not giving them the whole version of a song, uh, which he later referred to as his Reader Digest versions of, of music. <laughs> and as much as he certainly honed that skill later in life, I mean, that was it, that was directly related to feedback and suggestions that he received from his piano teacher when he was a young kid playing in uh, silent movie theaters. And I think that, you know, he realized really early on that he liked music. He liked the piano. He liked the idea of being a musician. But again, I know that, that his family struggles influenced 
what he did. I know that he did not want to be a starving artist. If he was going to be a pianist, he was going to be a popular pianist. And he knew that that, that meant uh, trying some things out, playing popular music, uh, being, being very conversational with his audience. Um, and then certainly later in life, the huge stagecraft and costumes, but that would take a while to, to build up. He seemed to focus very highly on wanting to be more of a, uh, a quote unquote performer rather than a musician. I mean, he, he focused on the act as much as he focused on the music, the lighting, the staging, the props, and, and of course the publicity that he created for himself as well. He really wanted to be different. Definitely. He loved music, but he knew intrinsically that audiences remember an experience uh even more so honestly than they do talent and I, that's just human nature so as soon as technology and his budget accounted uh, and allowed for it he found ways to really up all all of those things that you you said his staging his lighting his props his costumes um and it's interesting you know i think Sometimes what we hear about people and what we know about people doesn't always come from the best of sources. So, for instance, um, his his partner later in life, Scott Thorson, I think there's a lot about what he said about Liberace that we really do have to take with a grain of salt. Uh, but, you know, he lived with him for, for years uh not only as his partner, but worked as his, you know, did in fact work as his chauffeur, appeared as his chauffeur in stage performances. And he said, you know, Liberace didn't often practice the piano. He did practice all of these other things, but he wasn't getting up every morning and practicing the piano. He wasn't even necessarily playing for fun by that point in his life in the, in the 80s. And again, you know, Scott Thorson is is definitely not a source that I uh, uh, take with full integrity or, or full truthfulness. But uh, I, you know, I, I think that certainly gels with what we know about Liberace. That that by certainly later in life, he's far more focused on on everything else. And a lot of that, I think, he also learned on television. Um, he's on television in the fifties. Uh, his show drew more than thirty million viewers. Um, during during syndication and a lot of a lot of what he realizes people want um is directly things that he notices when he's on television so he employs what um television scholars call ritualistic domesticity which is you know this idea that you're inviting someone into your home um certainly it doesn't work with like a sitcom but but uh it works very well with talk shows with variety acts uh shows like The View still use it today. And he, you know, he invites his mother and George, he makes it very clear that his principal violinist and orchestra director is his brother. He talks about the fact that it's his brother. He ends every show the same way. I mean, very similar to children's programming. Instead of singing Barney's song, he's singing I'll Be Seeing You. And he exaggerates everything. He realizes, like, I can't just play the piano. I have have to do these flourishes and I have to have this dramatic lighting and I have to, you know, make the angles and, and the motions look and pop and, and feel like you're right there next to it. Um, and he takes that and it's very different when he's in a stadium or, or a, a, you know, a large concert hall, but he takes those same 
theories and methods and applies them to his stagecraft. How did the critics receive Liberace when he first started performing and then later on in his career? You know, early critiques of Liberace are, are interesting because, you know, especially if you're looking at his his recital debuts and things like that, it 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 sounds like this is a is a very 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 talented concert pianist. Um and it doesn't take very long for for his critique to be that he's not a very <laughs> talented concert pianist, that he's not a legitimate pianist, that all he is is just a showman. Um, and, I, you know, there are some, there's some clear reasons for that. You know, I think uh, as with any more traditional art form, uh, the people who were first critiquing him when he first started and before he starts wearing the costumes and, and focusing on the jokes and the stage lighting and driving Rolls Royces out onto the stage, um, which are all things he did. <laughs> you know, the 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 critics could identify that he did have a musicality, that he that he did have musical chops. But the the piano playing took up a much smaller percentage of his act the the longer and longer he was on the stage and i you know i i think in a lot of ways his critiques came out a lot less like critiques and more like uh either stating the obvious or what i would describe as just you know blatant jealousy that liberace was making hundreds of thousands of dollars and and the other concert pianists were not um I, he, his, his critics identified that, you know, he, he didn't take himself seriously. And so they didn't necessarily take him seriously, but he was in on it. He was in on the joke. I don't, um, I don't think it really bothered him. I, he, he's often quoted as, as being the person who sort of familiarized us with the phrase, cried all the way to the bank. And the first time he apparently used it was, you know, in direct um, response to a critic. And he said, you know, I, I read your review and and uh, uh, thank you so much. My brother George and I, we cried all the way to the bank after reading it. <laughs> you mentioned about the, the character, quote unquote, of Liberace and how he really didn't take himself all that seriously. I, I was doing some reading into some of the TV appearances that he made throughout his career. And I mean, we're talking about appearing on shows like the original Batman with Adam West and Burt Ward and uh, being on the monkeys and the Muppet show. And I, I watched a video of him from the, the early eighties when he hosted on MTV and, 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 and he was once the timekeeper at WrestleMania. I, I mean, again, he kind of almost, he realized people were laughing at him, but he laughed with them and, and he was in on the joke. Liberace was the epitome of being in on the joke. He loved it. He loved the attention. He loved the excess. He loved the fact that he could be this guy out there in public wearing, you know, literally eight rings at a time um, and a giant diamond encrusted piano shaped watch and that he could go to, you know, antique sales and everyone would be like, oh, it's just Liberace dropping another, you know, 100,000 on antiques. He loved it. He curated his persona so specifically. Um, and and the 
the appearances that you mentioned, I mean, oh my gosh, him playing uh, twins on Batman, incredible for anyone who's not seen it, which I would assume is the majority of your listeners and the majority of <laughs> people in 2023, definitely worth seeing. Um, Muppet Show, another great example. Uh, Liberace's concert with the birds on the Muppet Show is some of the weirdest psychedelic fever art uh in the history of the Muppets, which is truly saying something, because if, if you are a, if you've watched some 70s and 80s Muppet shows, I mean, it's weird all the time. And Liberace took it to the next level. Um, he, you know, he knew he knew that he was a good piano player and could 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 have made a good stand up comedian. And that other than that, he didn't necessarily have the, the biggest acting chops. He didn't necessarily, uh, you know, he wasn't the tallest guy in the room. He knew that that uh, people had a certain vision of him and he he was fine playing up to that. I watched a few videos as well of some of his appearances on on Carson and Letterman and some of the late night shows. And again, he just he looked like he was there to have fun and it just looked so natural, particularly when you compare it to even appearances by celebrities today on those shows. This just seemed like natural fun conversation between him and the host. And there was always just such good chemistry with him. I think he was naturally a nice guy. Um, and I'm not a Midwesterner. So I say this only because this is what people tell me about the Midwest. Um, but I think you know, he he did sort of present himself in in conversation with people and meeting people in 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 when he was not on stage. He presented himself with with what you know Americans sort of think of as that typical Midwestern, easy to get along with, humble, funny. You just you go with the flow. You don't take yourself too seriously. Um, and I I think on. Uh, sort of to add a, a even more complex layer, I, Liberace is one of those celebrities who was not naturally a, a huge extrovert. Um, and so putting on that stage persona, I think, insulated and protected him. I think he got bigger and bolder and crazier the the longer he did it because it did protect his personal life and his personal self um it was a little bit of armor it was pink turkey feather armor there's no question that he lived a very lavish lifestyle and he he really did flaunt it with the the publicity and and what he shared of himself in that when he would go on a show like carson he'd show up wearing a a, a 25 pound sequined suit and giant diamond rings and and he had films of him uh, swimming in the the piano shaped swimming pool and and riding around in his one of his many rolls royces but it, it it's so odd i feel like if somebody did that today where they were flaunting their their wealth on social media everybody would hate them when i watch these videos of liberace and i see these photos of him I'm not mad at the guy. In fact, I I, I really kind of love him for it. <laughs> Liberace uh, did a did a wonderful job of of bringing people in, and and truly, it's that I, it's that idea of capitalism of of make everyone think that they can be a part of this uh, if, if they if they 
be your friend, if they like you, if they follow this lifestyle, everyone can can have this too. Liberace was the master at that. And and I, I, I don't say that cynically. I mean, I, I think he really was. I think he, he knew how to make people feel welcome. And he was so generous. And I think that that's something that did help. I think people... Uh, intrinsically saw like, yeah, this guy has got seven houses and one of them's got a piano shaped pool and, and one of them has like a, a gold leafed bathtub, but his mom lives with him and he donates money to animal rescues and he's got 27 dogs and almost all of them are rescue dogs and he's starting a scholarship foundation and, you know, he was he wasn't stingy. He wasn't, um, he was certainly boastful, <laughs> but in a way that made you feel like, well, he's telling us this because he wants us to be in on it. Um, and in fact, I, the other aspect of it, and I cannot take credit for this, uh, there's a biography that came out uh, like in 2000, uh, Liberace, an American Boy by uh, Darden Asbury Pyron uh, that looks at Liberace and his legacy. And, and the title sort of speaks to what it's about. It's this idea that he is truly that first, second generation American immigrant story of success and you stay a little humble because your parents made it very clear how hard they worked to get there. And uh, yeah, you've got a little bit of that new money and, and maybe you don't always make the wisest investing decisions, but you're really just doing it because you have accomplished this American dream that, that whether it's real or not, we, we all think it is. From the reading that I did into his career, my understanding was Liberace had a uh, a very special, very close relationship with his fans. And one of the things I read, and hopefully you'll be able to tell me if this is fact or fiction, was that he read and responded to all of his own fan mail. Liberace definitely read his fan mail. Um, and I would say probably read as much of it as possible um I, he we know he did we know that he directly read his fan mail and and the reason we know that is a couple reasons uh first of all because he he did in fact tailor things over the years to commentary that his fans had said in letters um he would make jokes or design costumes after specific interactions with fans either in person or um in letters he also did that a lot of times with the media if the media gave him a hard time about uh, certain costume elements. Uh, he would go out of his way to then one up whatever they'd made fun of. Um, <laughs> so we do, uh, to, to get back to your question, we certainly, I think, can in good faith believe him that he read all of his fan mail. Um, was he the only one taking care of his fan correspondence, particularly when he was on television in the 50s and 60s and he was receiving 10,000 letters a week? I don't know. I I have a hard time opening the the like twenty pieces of mail that come to me every week. <laughs> so I I know Liberace was a was probably a, a more prolific man than I, uh, but I I don't I don't know how realistic it was that he personally responded to every piece of fan mail. Um, but did he care deeply for his fans? A hundred percent. Did he read his fan mail? a hundred percent uh did he still have pieces of his fan mail in uh his collection at the Liberace museum when i worked there yes he did um so those are all those are all i think 
hopefully good indications of at least his good faith effort to have as as close and respectful of of relationship with his fans as he could. After the break, Claire shares her thoughts on Liberace paving the way for the Vegas headliners of today, and we discuss his personal life and his battle to keep it private. That's next on Jeff Does Vegas. dive a little bit into his personal life and this is where things were a little bit dicey in the world of Liberace. Um, Mid-1950s, obviously a, a very different time from today. Stories begin to circulate that Liberace was gay. There were questions about his his sexuality. He vehemently fought back against these stories, even going as far as launching lawsuits he had an incredible ability um for some people to see him as this clean cut most eligible bachelor dirk square jaw kind of guy while the other half of his audience saw right through it and immediately said that's a gay man um i probably the the most famous person to say as much is Elton John, who has said many times, like, first time I saw him on television, I knew, I knew he was gay. And I knew this is the first gay person, definitively gay person I've ever seen. Um, And I think that's so incredible, because it it tells us a lot about perspective, and about sort of human nature and, and seeing what we want to see and also seeing like and like, like, the people who could see through him um, weren't necessarily, it's not necessarily that they themselves were gay, but but there's something that they saw, something about the outsider in Liberace um, that they were able to identify. But he worked so hard at, at, at hiding that and being a bit of a chameleon that, you know, it, it was it was not a part of what he wanted to display to people. Um, And certainly part of that was the culture. Um, I think it would be very different. You know, if his family, I know this is a total tangent, but um, his family had had longevity, like his his parents, his siblings lived a long time. If he had not died of AIDS, I think Liberace may have have lived well into the 90s, um, maybe even the early 2000s, because he was 67 when he passed away. And it, it would be interesting to see like what how would he have changed if he'd made it into the 90s, if he'd made it until 2000 uh, as celebrities, young and old, started actively coming out regularly in public, in the media, um, including ones who, like Liberace, had been essentially closeted for, for decades. But I also know that he was deeply private, and I'm not certain in the same way that there are to this day celebrities gay and straight who do not want you to know who they're married to do not want you to know when they're having children do not want you to know uh their sexuality or their gender identity i think i think Liberace might have never been the kind of person who wanted to talk about his personal life and so in the mid 50s to get back to your actual question um there's a couple of of gossip columnists in the united states as well as uh, the daily mirror in the uk who call him out 
and um, there's there's one uh, the 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 most famous case is in 1956. Uh, he sues the Daily Mirror after their columnist uh, Cassandra writes that Liberace is the pinnacle of masculine, feminine, and neuter, um, and says that he is everything that he, she, and it can ever want. Um, she goes on to describe him as a series of adjectives, N none none specifically uh, sort of pejoratives, uh, but certainly very clear what she's hinting at. Uh, she calls him fruit flavored and he sues the Daily Mirror for libel. He wins. A jury rules in his favor in, in 59. Um, he's awarded 8,000 pounds in damages and he sort of uses this as a blueprint to try to to try to tackle uh, similar stories in the U.S. So the the um, the following year in '57, the Confidential, uh, a, a a very very gossipy gossip rag in the U.S. publishes a story uh, entitled "Why Liberace's Theme Song Should Be Mad About the Boy," and this is one of a handful of times when American gossip magazines allude to his homosexuality throughout the 50s and all the way into the 80s. I mean, essentially, they never necessarily let up. They just get a little softer about it, so Liberace won't sue them. Um, he sues again in, in 57. He settles. Um, and the next time he really has to deal with anything very public is in the 80s when uh, Scott Thorson, his former partner and former chauffeur, uh, sues him for palimony after he's both dumped and dismissed by Liberace. Um, <laughs> and, you know, even even as late as, as when he's in court depositions in 84, he still insists that Scott was never his partner. Um, and I think that's, you know, I think that's interesting for a couple reasons. First of all, because, I mean, it's bold. It is very bold of him. Uh, it is very different for him to take a libel suit uh, versus in court saying, no, Scott has never been my partner, um, clearly perjuring himself. I think what's also interesting about it is... Um, you know, this is this is someone he'd been publicly seen with um, for for many years. So again, there's there's sort of this element of of it kind of causes confusion. It's like, well, why was he living with you? Why why do you have this relationship if you're insisting that he's not your partner or was not your partner? Um, and then I think the other element of it too is, you know, by the '80s even though it is still not easy to come out as as a gay man um it's definitely a different climate like to to present yourself the way Liberace presented himself and still say nope my sexuality is no one's business and it's not on the table and i am not gay and i i like gay men for friends and I have uh, homosexual friends and I have friends of all walks of life and I'm totally fine with that but I myself am not gay is I, that's a that is it's a choice I mean I, it sounds so silly but that is a very firm choice to to take that position that late in life and having presented himself the way he had for so many decades it's such an interesting paradox to me with Liberace where You've got this person who lives this 
lavish, flamboyant lifestyle. They are out there. They are very public. Their persona is that they are connected to their fans. They're sharing their life. But at the same time, as you say, he's also insanely private about what's going on in his personal life. It is. And, you know, I'm sure... I'm sure that this might be overstating it a bit, but Liberace is a is a wonderful blueprint in a lot of ways for for a celebrity who wants to be over the top, um, but also wants to have a private life. Because Liberace, I I I know I know I already said this, but he went out of his way to create this stage persona that did help to mask who he was. And yes, it exaggerated certain elements of his personality. And and I do not mean his sexuality. I mean, literally his personality. Um, it certainly exaggerated elements of his personality, but it was always with an eye towards shielding his true person from the spotlight. From what I had read, he had hid his sexuality right up to the time of his death. And my understanding as well was that he hid his his illness up to the time of his death. And the true cause of his death was not revealed or released until after his passing. Yes. Uh, Liberace passed away on February 4th of 1987. Um, what pretty much no one knew outside of a very, very, very tight circle was that he'd been diagnosed uh, with uh, HIV uh, by his personal physician privately in August of 1985. Um, Certainly his, his team and and select family members were aware of his AIDS status Um, and his AIDS status had been an enduring rumor for, for a few years before his death. Um, I think what's unfortunate is that his AIDS status was actually a rumor even before uh, he was diagnosed. So, you know, whether whether people were saying that about him before he even had HIV is a whole nother matter. But uh, it was definitely a rumor that he was aware of. Um, there, there were some elements of physical decline. And what his team sort of banked on was the fact that... Uh, one one thing Liberace fans knew about Liberace was that he was a chain smoker, a multiple pack a day smoker from his teens all literally up until his death. And so one of the things that his team really thought would sort of help them hide his his aid status was the fact that a lot of the things that uh, are, you know, comorbidities with AIDS such as such as the pneumonia uh, that that did kill Liberace are things that also happen in later years to people who are chain smokers. Uh, Liberace did have emphysema and because of that uh, you know some of the other things that he was was battling with um, heart failure and heart disease and some of these things, they're all so tied into being a heavy smoker. And his team did think that, you know, that was something that would be easy to sort of blame. Oh, you know, unfortunately it was his smoking. 
And his personal physician actively tried to stop the coroner in Palm Springs from performing an autopsy. They did not want this information made public. Um, but unfortunately, it kind of backfired because the autopsy report explicitly states that his team was trying to hide um, the actual cause of his death, which, you know, was pneumonia caused by AIDS. How close up to the end of his life was he performing and making appearances? Oh my gosh, up until the very end. Uh, so he passes away in early February of 87. Uh, he performs his final concert at Radio City Music Hall uh, two months earlier, November 2nd, 1986. And truly, if it wasn't for the 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 quirk of, of when in the year this happened, he probably would have been performing even closer to the time of his death. Uh, but Liberace loved to uh, take the whole month of December off. He rarely performed in, in December and, and very rarely did television appearances even uh, because he was a devout Catholic. Um, that's not, that wasn't just a thing he said. I mean, he truly, truly was a deeply faithful, devout Catholic. And he also loved Christmas. I mean, I, I don't think he just loved Christmas because of his Catholic faith. I think he loved Christmas because it involved lights and tinsel and, and rhinestones and all the things that Liberace loved. Um, so he, he performs at Radio City Music Hall at the beginning of November. He took the whole month of December off. Um, and his final sort of true public appearance was on television uh, on the Oprah Winfrey show. The show aired on Christmas Day, but it was a pre-taped episode that had been filmed in late November. So um, he had had plans to resume touring in the beginning of 1987, um, and he had to uh, make other arrangements uh, and uh that wound up being his final public appearance. Let's talk about Liberace in Las Vegas and the impact that he had on the world of entertainment in Vegas. When did he first come to Las Vegas and start performing there? Las Vegas and Liberace are sort of there from the beginning. He comes in 1944. Uh, the first time he performs is at the Hotel Last Frontier, uh, which is the second hotel and casino built on the Las Vegas Strip. The entertainment director, Maxine Lewis, uh, hires him for $750 a week, which at the time was was about double what he'd been making in, in other venues. He'd been performing, you know, all across the Midwest, uh, both U.S. and Canada, and then in New York particularly. The story is that uh, after his very first performance, Maxine Lewis is watching him in the back and he does such a wonderful job that she doubled his contract uh, to $1,500 a week. <laughs> I say the story is because Liberace was all about the creative storytelling and the exaggeration. And I mean, even, oh gosh, even working at the Liberace Museum, I mean, there were things that some of the staff would say, um, myself included, that I truly believed. And then you'd think about it one day and you'd think, oh, God, there's no way this is possible. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I know the Liberace Foundation, um, even though the museum is no longer open to the public, the foundation still operates. And I know that that actively to this day, the, the executive director of the foundation and others on the team, you know, sort of have to deal with that, that that. Liberace himself kind of exaggerated some of his stories. And then for 20, 30 years, the museum 
perpetuated some of those exaggerations and uh it's it's tough with Liberace. It's very similar to the mob, actually, because mobsters are terrible about that also. they Like, Bugsy Siegel was a huge exaggerator also. So <laughs> <laughs> The the later years in Vegas, you mentioned he was a, a part of the Riviera and performed there for a, a, a very long time. And then, of course, he also, another thing he shared with Elvis was residency at the Hilton. Yes. So, um I almost don't want to do this because I hate when Elvis overshadows Liberace, but um, I do have to say from the beginning of, of Elvis's time in, in Las Vegas, he sort of in a lot of ways mirrors Liberace. And if, if it was not for Liberace, I think some of the things that happens to Elvis later in his career here in Vegas might not have happened. Uh, just like Liberace, Elvis's first place that he ever performs in Las Vegas is also the Frontier. He performs there in 56. Um, and in fact, the very first time Elvis ever performed, he is he doesn't do that well. Because it's it's the fifties and he's still used to teenage audiences and that is not who's coming to Las Vegas showrooms. Um, and Liberace literally goes to Elvis and says, "Hey, you are clearly talented. You are clearly a talented musician. Clearly a talented singer. If you want to perform here, you're gonna have to go. You're gonna have to." change your show a little you can still sing your songs but you're going to have to make them more appealing to older audiences these are not teenage girls and you know think about adding costumes think about adding a little flash a little glitz a little glamour um and by the time elvis is performing at the hilton he is he's pretty much he marries the shirtless appeal of tom jones with the uh rhinestone appeal of liberace and, and that's what makes elvis so successful but back to the more important person liberace um liberace performs like you said at the hotel last frontier he performs at the riviera uh, then he moves to the caesar's palace and he finally finds a permanent permanent home at the hilton in 72. uh he is paid at the time an unprecedented $300,000 a week. Uh, remember, this is 72, so that's 72 money. I mean, he could he could have bought, like, I don't know, six houses a, a week on that salary. Um, and his shows, they were incredible. He had a fountain show, kind of the precursor to our Bellagio fountains here, uh, which he called Liberace's Dancing Waters. And in the shows, I mean, he would do as many, and it Every every year they differed a little, so you know you weren't necessarily seeing this every time. But he would do as many as like nine costume changes. Um, every show he drove out multiple cars onto stage, um, particularly his mirrored Rolls Royce, which he was not allowed to drive around on the streets of Las Vegas because we get sun like 320 days out of the year, and if he drove that mirrored Rolls Royce on the streets, he would have blinded everyone. <laughs> Um, he used multiple pianos. He would, uh, and, and to facilitate all of this, to, to facilitate driving out the multiple cars and moving the pianos and doing the costume changes. The other thing that he really revolutionized was the use of video. Um, the use of video montages, the use of videos to bring people into his, his personal life in a very curated way. But um, while he was doing these costume changes, he would show, you know, 30 second videos, minute long videos uh, that showed him at home with his dogs. So you'd get to meet his Sharpay wrinkles or you'd get to see what his 
gold-plated, gold-leafed bathtub in his Las Vegas home looked like. And that in and of itself was sort of like a, a nod to fans. Fans loved this ability to, to not only see him in person, but also see what, what was going on at home. Um, my favorite of his video sort of uh, montages was uh, he had... He had in the late 70s a, a video play at the beginning of his concerts where you'd essentially see him getting ready for the show. I mean, it's clearly not really what he did, but he's he's putting on his cape. His maid is putting his cape on and he's getting into his Rolls Royce and he's driving down Paradise to get to the Hilton and he's pulling up and like, I, you know, it is it's. It's so, it makes you want to be his friend. It makes you want to go to his house and be a part of this and meet his greyhounds and, and do the whole thing. Let's talk about the house that he had in Las Vegas because it in and of itself has got quite a story behind it as well. Yeah, so Liberace's home in Las Vegas, uh, he purchased it in 1974. People are often surprised he didn't have a permanent residence in Las Vegas until then. Um, and, you know, part of that is because he he did live in, in primarily in, in Southern California. His other six homes were in California and we're not that far from California. And on top of that, you know, I, these, these residency shows, the performers live at the property most of the time. Most of the time they are given elaborate semi-permanent suites to live in while they're performing. And so you don't necessarily need to have a home here. And and I mean, that's true of, of you know, so many of the performers who performed here. But, you know, by the by the 70s, he's, he's very happy at the Hilton. He always loved Las Vegas, truly. He always did. And so he thinks it's time to invest. Uh, so he buys the property. Uh, it was in a residential neighborhood just across the street from UNLV. Uh, the, the home still exists. It's now an event venue. Um, it's just a few blocks from the Strip. It was perfectly located. And he 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 essentially splits his time between there and his home in Palm Springs for the rest of his life. It, it really does become sort of uh, one of his two primary residences. Uh, his mother lives with him here in Las Vegas. She has her own little private wing in his compound. Um, he, 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 he decks his Las Vegas home out as much as possible. Uh, certainly not unique to him. He loved interior design. But he did, he does he the his bathroom is a sight to behold if if any of your listeners have never looked up a picture of Liberace in his Las Vegas bathtub, uh, I it's highly recommended. What would you say is Liberace's biggest impact on the world of Las Vegas entertainment? Liberace's impact on on Las Vegas entertainment was huge, and I mean, I I it clearly sounds cliche, and it clearly sounds like I'm very biased, but it, it just can't be overstated because of how campy he was, how campy and kitschy, and how Vegas he was. I think that's one of the reasons we tend to forget him. We tend to forget him because he's not cool like the Rat Pack. He's not cool like Elvis. He's just Liberace. Um, but the thing is, is, is his success in Las Vegas predates the Rat Pack. He is regularly performing at the Riviera long before Sinatra is. Um, Sammy Davis Jr. is actually performing kind of simultaneously with Liberace, but not for the same amount of money, not for the same 
a number of audience members. And not only does he sort of predate the Rat Pack, and and so if you're gonna, you know, talk about how important the, uh, the Rat Pack is, you know, I, you know, you gotta look ahead of uh, ahead and before, uh, but but. In terms of Elvis, he paves the way for Elvis as well as many others. His model of a residency uh, starts at Riviera, is solidified at Caesars, and goes into overdrive at the Hilton. And so when we start seeing in the 70s and 80s and, and all the way into the modern day, people like Elvis, Anne Margaret, Lola Falana, Tom Jones, Wayne Newton, moving into the present with, you know, Cher and Celine Dion and Elton John. When you see those people getting residencies where they are making millions of dollars a week in their paychecks, Liberace created that model. He truly did. Um, and he really did help to drive the huge salaries that Las Vegas entertainers received throughout the 60s and 70s and 80s and again into the present um he also elevated the technical aspects of shows the stage flying company uh foy which is is an international company like he's one of the first uh entertainers here to to use their services and and boy does he use their services i mean he's flying around with his cape spread spread wide so people can see the front and the back and and you know he did he elevated uh the technical aspects of of performance and theater here in las vegas costume changes you know you can't you can't look at at people like elton john and lady gaga and their costumes and not see liberace and i again like yes i sound incredibly biased but i'm also speaking of people who have confirmed that yeah they they want to have costumes the way liberace had costumes Hearing you talk about the contributions that he made to Vegas entertainment and the impact that he had on the city and the industry as a whole, it's, it's so weird to me. He's not, he's not celebrated the way other performers are. I mean, there's no, um, there's no Liberace tribute show the way there are, um, Rat Pack tribute shows. There's, there, there aren't Liberace impersonators and characters walking up and down the strip asking for, for photos and money the way there are, um, Elvis impersonators. How is he honored in the city? I wish that the city did do a better job of honoring his legacy on a whole, because you are so correct. Um, I, so when, when the Liberace Museum was still open, uh, there were a couple of Liberace uh, impersonators and, and Liberace style entertainers who performed there. And, you know, some of them are still in town and, and do things, but there's not, there is not a market for that. Um, although as an aside, um, it is worth noting, there's been a number of think pieces in Las Vegas over the last 10 years about how even Elvis uh impersonators are are diminishing in in not only number but in influence um i because i grew up in las vegas and and i guess something about that just in engenders having a bunch of weird jobs i i worked at a themed wedding chapel for a while um and i they i just read an article that them and a couple others in town do like a third of the number of elvis weddings that they did 
just when I worked there about 20 years ago. So we, as a, as a whole, don't always do the greatest job of honoring our, our history, uh, which is just, you know, I, what I would say in general. Just last month, uh, so just in December of 2022, a segment of, of uh, one of the, the roads and sort of the tourist corridor, Karen Avenue, uh, was renamed Liberace Avenue. And I literally just happened last month. I mean, that's so it's so sad. That should have happened years ago. We have a you know, we have a, a road named for Sinatra. We have a road named for Dean Martin. Why don't why didn't we have a road named for Liberace? Um, the city does, you know, recognize milestone birthdays and anniversaries of his death and things like that. And there have certainly been recent displays of, of some of his collection on the Strip. There was an exhibition um, at Resorts World when it just opened of some of his pianos. And, and then another component of it uh, was his mirrored Rolls Royce and, and a couple costumes. Uh, I, I know at the Mob Museum, you know, we certainly referenced Liberace performing at the Hotel Last Frontier and, and especially the grand opening of the Riviera. Um, he's certainly a part of our story there. But, you know, I think I think there's two reasons why he's been so overshadowed by Elvis and, and the Rat Pack and others. And I think part of that is the privacy and the questions uh, when he passed, even for for people who have not an, an inkling of prejudice or fear or uh problem with with his his death or his AIDS status or his homosexuality there is still when he passed away there was this cloud and so I think it, it was it was easier to just sort of ignore the burning questions that people had about him um, and that meant that he got forgotten maybe a little too quickly after his death and then I think the other thing is after his museum closed to the public in 2010, it is really hard to see Liberace in town. You can still see the collection that there are tours uh, that you can take by private appointment, um, but it does, it, it limits the legacy. I think his impact on Las Vegas and on American popular culture would be easier for people to see if they could see his collection more accessibly and, and even more so, I think, if we could contextualize it along with these stories of other entertainers and, and Las Vegas events. If people want to learn more about Liberace, are there any particular books or websites you recommend, any videos you think people should go out of their way to watch? The great thing about Liberace is um, you can actually hear directly from him about his life. Uh, he did publish two autobiographies. The first one in 1973 is a little more, a little more serious minded. Um, and then, then he published a second autobiography um, a few years later. Both of them are just a great glimpse into how he himself framed his life and his success and his fame, um, which is fun. The other great thing about Liberace is if you don't want to read and you just want to listen, uh, you can access so much media related to Liberace online. Um, I'm, I'm not kidding when I recommended The Muppet Show earlier. Um, I, it, it was a tongue-in-cheek recommendation, but, but now I'm 
doubling down as a firm recommendation that you have to watch Liberace on The Muppet Show. There are also, as you mentioned, some great interviews, um, some great late night interviews. His Oprah interview, the the one that, that would become his last public appearance is a fun one. Um, I, sad, certainly, certainly a bittersweet thing to, to watch if you're a fan, um, but definitely a, a good glimpse into to the very end of his life. And then as far as as other source material, I think I referenced it earlier. Liberace, An American Boy by Darden Asbury Pyron was written in um, 2000, and it is a wonderful look at his life. It is academic in the sense that it makes some pretty sweeping claims about his legacy and claims about his his place in, in American popular culture, but definitely not a a dense read. I mean, even though it, it's a it's written by an academic and sort of has a a very clear history element to it, it's a it's a easy read. It's a light read. Excellent stuff, Claire. I, I really hope that um, this inspires people to maybe go and and learn a little bit more about Liberace and 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 find out a bit more about his his history in the city and. And I also really hope too that maybe he becomes a little bit more top of mind and um, becomes a a little bit more of a a fixture in the minds of people when they think of Vegas history and Vegas entertainment history specifically. Well, I'm glad I sold you on that um, because I, I do too. I mean, I I I care deeply about Liberace's legacy and I know I'm not the only one. The Liberace Foundation still operates. I know they are doing all they can um, certainly more than I am on a day-to-day basis trying to get that that story out um, and so I, I, you know, that is actually another resource I should mention. You can find them at Liberace.org um, but good, you know, Liberace was a huge part of Vegas and to forget about him is is a shame <laughs> Claire, thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff. And that wraps up another episode of Jeff Does Vegas. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. Or drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been Jeff Does Vegas, a Walker New Media production.